Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. Josh Norris here with another episode of the Roto World Football Podcast. We're back, Internet, after last week's NFC South Presser Series with Trevor Sycama. Uh, be sure to check that one out. That was obviously with the Bucks, the Panthers, the Saints, and the Falcons. I'm still keeping up this NFC Presser Series, and this time it's the NFC West. But before we get to the San Francisco 49ers, and then later on, the Seahawks, the Rams, and the Cardinals... I'm going to give a few shout-outs. done this in a while, and I don't have my pal Evan Silva here, but I want to say thank you to Nimwet, Coach Hav, Jonathan Cephalo, Draft Dude, er- Enrico Pala- Palazzo. Gosh, I almost said Palazzolo. We know who that guy is. Uh, Prime <laughs> Rhett, J-Line, and Brett Emerson R. They all gave us five-star reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts. If you want to check, if, well, if you want to shout-out yourself, you can do the same thing. We really appreciate the love. Because we love you back, if you can tell. At least I do. I don't know about the other guys. Anyways, I have David Newman on the other side of this Skype conversation. You can find him on Twitter, at NewmanNFL. That's N-E-U-M-A-N-N-N-F-L. He's trying to make it as complicated as possible. Uh, He's a PFF analyst and also part of the Better Rivals podcast. David, how's life since the draft for you? Life's excellent, man. Uh, It's been going really well draft was very good i'm excited about kind of where things are going so uh thanks for so much for having me on yeah absolutely and obviously the 49ers were one of the busier teams and one of the more noteworthy teams throughout so we'll get to them and once again once i let david go i'll get to the other three teams in the nfc west but we should start off with obviously the 49ers made six trades and it started off with their pick at number two with moving from number two to number three to select Solomon Thomas. After I went through the press conference, David, I took away that they wanted to make it a point that Solomon Thomas is a different kind of defensive lineman than they have on their roster. I know a lot of people were concerned about DeForest Buckner and Ark Armstead and maybe Solomon all working together. But to me, at least, it seemed like they wanted to make it known to fans that Solomon is a different breed than the others. Yeah, it's interesting with Thomas because I, I certainly agree that he is a different type of player. He brings um, some different things to the table. I think he's a much better athlete. Uh, I, I think the ability to potentially rush the passer off the edge there is is greater than it is. But with kind of the way that they're playing things so far, they seem a little bit more intent on trying Eric Armstead out in more of that edge role, at least yeah. uh, initially. So I, I think it's there's kind of some conf- 
conflicting things there to me. Um, but I, I do think that you get something different with Thomas. And I think ultimately when you, when you think about those guys in sub packages, right. And having the flexibility to be able to, um, bump in any of them inside, um, to put any of them on the edge for, for certain snaps and also to kind of spell each other. Right. And, and not have, I mean, DeForest Buckner was playing an absurd number of snaps last year. So I think if you can kind of minimize that and keep these guys fresh and, um, you know, think about more their fit and sub packages rather than how to squeeze all three of them on the field, um, you know, just when they're in base, I think it makes a lot more sense there. And I know that a question was asked about the Michael Bennett role, which they said was a four I role um, that that most likely might be where Solomon plays. But again, and you mentioned it, this is kind of a team with a defense that doesn't have like a pure pass rusher still on the roster. And obviously you can't fill every single hole in one draft, but that's a pretty major hole for a defense <laughs> trying to take the next step. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, I think it's to me without question, the biggest hole that they have left probably, you know, pass rusher and, and offensive line, I think are the two weakest areas on the roster. And it's a, you know, it's still a, a pretty bad roster at this point, even with a draft that I think a lot of people are positive on, but um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be again, interesting to see what they do there. The, because you have Aaron Lynch and, uh, you know, you don't know how things are going with him. There's the reports that he's overweight and uh, you wonder how long that they're going to kind of stick with him. So yeah. I, I think the ability to find somebody that can really kind of come off the edge and, and add a different element there is, is certainly something they need. Um, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic that Thomas could provide that. I think, you know, the athleticism is clearly there. I think he's shown some things, you know, he wasn't asked to do that a lot at Stanford. He was an interior guy, but right. He only played about a hundred pass rushing snaps on the outside, I believe. Yeah, it wasn't a lot. I mean, he was, you know, they, they run the three, four scheme there. So he was playing, you know, that three, four D end, and then he would kick down to three technique, uh, on the inside when, when you went into pass rush situations. So you didn't see it from him a lot. Um, but I think you, when you look at kind of the way that he moved in some other situations, you know, look at it, the, the movement skills in the run game on certain snaps, and you can see elements there that I think would translate. You know, I don't think he's going to come in and be able to get 10 sacks right away off the edge, but I think that's something that could be developed down the road for sure. But he, and he can disrupt, and they kept bringing that up, and obviously that's yeah. kind of different than Arik Armstead and DeForest Buckner, who in their pass rushing success might not have been their calling card, and it was kind of a ceiling projection for them. Uh, and finally, yeah. just quickly with Solomon Thomas, I found it fascinating that he and John Lynch were classmates a few years ago when Lynch was going back and working on a degree, which I, yeah, that- I, I thought that was, <laughs> that's kind of hilarious when you think about it. Um, okay, then obviously the 49ers traded back into round one for Ruben Foster. I'm not going to spend too much time patting myself on the back here, David. And I, I mean, it was obviously pick number 31 and it wasn't pick number two or number three, but I had pretty good intel that Ruben was their second favorite player that was realistic behind um, Solomon Thomas. I tweeted that out, but obviously they, tra- they tried to go back up into the teens to get Ruben Foster started with those conversations there, but not until pick 31. And really all they had to give up was a fourth round pick, like absolutely nothing. Um, So Ruben Foster comes in. There are a lot of questions with him from many out in the media, many with other teams that we keep hearing about shoulder character. What stood out to me, David, was that John Lynch said the reason we drafted Ruben Foster aside from his tape was his character because he was – you know, such an entertaining and and enjoyable individual to be around. Like he lit up a room. So it seems like they realize that their evaluations are the one that matters and they're not really worrying about anyone else's. 
definitely. I mean, you see that, I think, with the medical as well, right? I mean, there, there were a lot of reports about um, his shoulders being in really bad shape and that he may miss, you know, either some time or maybe the entire season. Um, but they felt very confident in the evaluation from their medical staff and, and they, you know, kind of roll with that. And I think, um, you know, on the character front, they put a lot of time into it, right? They sent a couple guys out to spend time with him in Alabama. They talked to Nick yeah, Saban. And, and, and that was the weekend before, by the way, I, I can yeah. add that. Uh, and then they were one of three teams to do that. I, I mentioned that kind of when, when all the stuff came out about Ruben and, and the diluted sample, the Eagles have been the other one. I'm not going to say who the other team is. Uh, because that hasn't been reported, but yeah, they were certainly one of three teams, like you just mentioned. Yeah, it was, so it was a situation I think where they did their homework, right. And they felt comfortable. And I think that's the area to me, at least that you're hoping John Lynch, uh, is making his biggest impact early on, right. He seems to be relying on some other guys, Adam Peters, you know, chief among them to handle a lot of the, the scouting element and, and kind of the football side of things, but he's really been there to kind of handle the character, handle the culture elements. And, and so, uh, yeah, I think you're definitely having to trust that he has that situation in order because if everything's good to go medical character standpoint, I mean, uh, I think it's pretty obvious they got one of the best football players potentially at 31 in this you know entire draft. Yeah, and they were Skyping and FaceTiming with him like all throughout draft week. So, I mean, obviously they were still very, very interested. What do you think about yeah. on the field? Like, does he just come in immediately and is a starter? I, if, if, if healthy, absolutely. Um, I, I think him and Navarro Bowman are kind of your clear top guys. Uh, and, and after that and kind of specific fits, I think are interesting. You know, again, if we think about it more as sub packages are going to be what dominates and most of the time you're going to have two linebackers on the field. Um, I think those are your two guys, right? Uh, those are, are certainly the most talented, the most versatile linebackers that they have. Um, and that was a big problem for them last year. You know, um, once they had some injuries, Bowman among them, linebacker especially on in, in, inside linebacker was just a nightmare and, and it really kind of killed them last year so uh, I think adding a player of his caliber is is huge um, he's you know he can impact the game in all three phases which I think is really important if you're going to take a linebacker that early you can't have really just a rundown linebacker uh, as a first rounder I think so the 49ers do not have a second round pick. Obviously they made that in the late first with Ruben Foster. So then we go to their first third round pick that was actually theirs. And that's corner Akella Witherspoon out of Colorado. One of the best corner athletes in this class and also massive for the position in terms of, of length and height. I think he's like six, one, six, two and has 33 plus inch arms. So my question to you, David is, is this the type of profile we're going to see, from the 49ers moving forward, kind of like the Seahawks, the Panthers, a few other teams that prefer length on the outside to get up and jam receivers at the line of scrimmage. Definitely. That was something that I think they mentioned, you know, um, pretty early on, actually, before the draft that like at this position, you know, we're looking for length. We're looking for for good athletes out there. Um, and he was somebody that, you know, uh, that we kind of identified, you know, him and Kevin King, I think, were probably at the top, you know, had to be at the top of their cornerback board because it was just kind of too obvious when you talk about the length and just kind of the crazy athleticism. And Witherspoon, um, I really loved watching his tape. I mean, you hmm. see him just get to passes that even when he's in bad position, right, you, he's able to use that length and, you know, he gets beat inside on a slant and is still able to, to get his hand in there and break up the pass. And um, I, I think that massive wingspan just, you know, he knows how to use it too. And he was, he came from more of a soccer background. He, he hasn't actually been playing football for all that long. 
And so I think the soccer background, you see that in his footwork. And he's just kind of a smooth, fluid athlete at that size, which you don't really see all that often. So, yeah, I think he's kind of exactly what they're they're looking for at that position. And actually, the that morning, John Lynch said that he and three other evaluators, you mentioned Peters and a few others, looked at a few of the corners available most likely in rounds two and rounds three. And and Witherspoon, well, that could be available for their pick at, thir- at 66, and Witherspoon was one of those. So they got, you know, a last-minute cram session, in, which I think is is absolutely common around the league, guys that you're thinking of. And, in fact, when I had my cup of coffee in the NFL with the Rams, they did that with DJ Williams and Lance Kendricks and ended up taking Lance Kendricks in round two. Um, I quickly want to rewind and say, uh, if you haven't, check out Peter King's story on the MMQB. It profiles, like, John Lynch th- through the entire first day of the draft. I'm sure you've read it, David. Um, I did. And Absolutely. it's, it's, I mean, I wish that was available for every single team because it would be <laughs> fascinating. Um, okay. So that's through three picks. Then we get to the fourth pick, the 49ers trade up from pick one Oh nine to one Oh four. Also giving up a seventh round pick. So absolutely nothing. Oh no, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So the fourth round up to the third round and the third round to select CJ Bethard, the quarterback out of Iowa. Uh, wouldn't you agree that this was like clearly, like absolutely clearly a Kyle Shanahan pick and not just from the position, but also when you watch the press conference afterwards, Shanahan hogs the microphone for 90% of the time, which makes sense. <laughs> yeah, this was his guy. I think actually the next two picks were, were really um, actually got three of the, three of the next four really seemed yeah. to be the kind of the guys that um, he really loved. And, and, you know, he heard some things about C.J. Beathard being the only quarterback in this draft that Shanahan wanted. Um, you know, I don't know how true that is necessarily. It seems a little strange if, if you end up with one quarterback on your board. But obviously he was a guy that, uh, that, that he really loved. And I think they're realistic about where he's at, right? He, he certainly... Um, is not ready to come in and, and compete for serious playing time early on. I mean, they very much seem to see him as a, a developmental guy that that has some tools. You know, he talked a lot, Shanahan talked a lot about some of the intangible qualities, you know, the toughness um, that he really liked. And um, one thing with, that was really interesting with Beathard, I thought, was he ended up being, so at PFF, right, we had the adjusted completion percentage, which um, factors in things like drops and throwaways and passes where the quarterback gets hit as he's thrown, et cetera. And he actually had the largest jumps um, from yeah. your regular completion percentage to your adjusted mark there. So he was kind of more negatively impacted by some of those factors outside of his control than any other quarterback in college football last year. So uh, I think and that was something that, you know, Shanahan mentioned. He said, you know, he doesn't look at the numbers. He just turns on the tape and watches it, essentially. Yep. Um, and uh, and you, you saw him mention kind of some of those things that the numbers alluded to there. But. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I would be very surprised if he gets up on the field any time in the next couple of years. But he seems to, again, have some have some qualities that, that I think are good that Shanahan looks for at that position. And, um, you know, you kind of have to trust him at, at that spot and trust that he can find and develop his guys. And just to continue on that quote that you mentioned, because a reporter asked about Beathard completing, I think, fewer than 60 percent of his passes during his final year. He said, you have to watch to make sure people get open, the rhythm of the offense with protections and receivers, are guys separating, and are they catching it? So it seems like the jump that PFF showed, uh, a lot of the answers to that question were no. So he was doing his job, but maybe other people weren't. Um, okay, then let's continue to on to day three. Uh, Joe Williams from Utah. David, I thought this was a, a fascinating discussion and paradigm that happened here. 
Um, so John Lynch, throughout his entire pre-draft process and pressers, talked about how we want people who love football, want to play football, things like that. And so uh, when he discussed the Joe Williams pick to Peter King and in his press conference, he talked about how at first he heard that Joe Williams quit on his team and that's all the information he got from the scouts. And so he was just automatically off. But Kyle Shanahan was one who didn't find the tape from the grave necessarily, but really liked him and pointed him out to uh, John Lynch once again. And then Lynch liked the tape and then again wanted to have a closer conversation. (laughs) And so he goes from off the board, David, to someone we have to trade up for, right? Like, yeah, uh, that's quite, that's quite, I'm not going to call an (laughs) overcorrection, but it's like when you get to know a guy, then you fall in love a little bit along with the tape. I think the concerning part is is the timing of that, right? Yeah. So I think if this was something that happened a couple of months before the draft, right, where you hear about, um, you know, him reportedly essentially quitting the team, and then you dig in a little bit deeper, you find out that, you know, it, it wasn't exactly that, and there's a little bit more to the story, and then so, okay, we're willing to bring him back on the board at that point, and, you know, you kind of continue the process from there. I don't, I don't think this is a big deal, right? The the crazy thing is it seems that they did this kind of last minute. And, and that's maybe the part where you question the process a little bit. But, um, you know, I think Joe Williams talked about in his presser where that Bobby Turner was basically like his uncle. You know, he was in contact with him so often. So and, I, I and think, Bobby you know, Turner works for the 49ers. Yeah, he's the, the running back coach, you right. know, excellent running back coach that's been with a Shanahan for an incredibly long time. You know, he goes all the way back to to Mike Shanahan when he started at Denver. So. Uh, you know, I, I think and that's kind of the other part with the Joe Williams thing where you want to kind of trust it, knowing the guys that they have kind of identifying those players is that Bobby Turner and, you know, the, the kind of the Shanahan family essentially has been really good at identifying running backs that that fit what they do and, and that can come in that system and have success. So I think that's where you want to, you know, if you're trying to skew things positively as a 49ers fan, that's what you kind of lean on. But it is definitely interesting that they kind of made that decision. So last moment. Yeah, and, and you mentioned so many good points there that I want to hit in a couple. Uh, you mentioned Bobby Turner. Uh, I think John Lynch said he, he spoke to him daily, Turner to Joe Williams. Um, and, and having the conversation – and look, I don't know Joe Williams at all. I, I briefly met him at the East-West Shrine game, and he certainly seemed like he loved football at that time. And obviously he talked about mental exhaustion and physical exhaustion along with some things in his past that led him away from football. Yeah, and, and so I, I, I'll spin this into a positive and say, hey, look – you know, getting to know someone actually, rather than just saying, okay, he quit the team, he's off the board, probably getting to know him is the right way to go. And yeah, like you said, it, it might've happened the morning of the final day, something like that. But um, it, it's just an interest. I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to call an overcorrection, but it's quite a shift in, in what they were talking about. Uh, let's, let's move to the fifth round, George Kittle, a tight end out of, out of Iowa. Um, what do you think of Kittle's game? Love Kittle, actually. I think he, him going in the fifth round was actually, uh, you know, more of a product of one, a very strong tight end class, and then two, just kind of a strong class in general at some key positions. You know, I think if this were uh, something more of a normal draft and when you didn't have kind of a stacked draft class at, at edge and at corner and in some of those key positions, that he probably goes more day two. So I think he's one where it's very apparent based on when what I was was doing offensively and kind of the scheme that they were running. You, you can see things that very easily translate. Um, I think uh, athleticism again comes into play here. They, they really seem to go high on athleticism up until this pick. 
Um, he was the number one tight end, uh, you know, according to Sparks. So on Three Sigma Athlete there. Look um, at you. And, love it. Yeah. Love it. Love Spark. Um, they had, I mean, Kittle was one of, I think, three players that were in 90th percentile or higher. Uh, and I think Foster, you know, maybe approaches that if he were actually able to, to test. So they went heavy on athleticism. And I think, yeah, he fits, you know, kind of what Shanahan's looking for in a tight end. He's able, he's a great blocker. You know, you have the athleticism there to get open and, and make things happen in the passing game. So, yeah, I like that fit a lot. Yeah. And I mean, he's a great blocker. We know that we see him just completely annihilate people off the ball. Uh, but with that athletic ceiling, like you talked about. So mm-hmm. that, that's a great pick in round five. Uh, then let's go to another fifth round pick who, David, this is my guy, Trent Taylor. <laughs> uh, look, God is against him. You know, he, he's like five, <laughs> yeah. seven, unathletic, short wide receiver who works in the slot. But I, look, if, if I bet on one guy that will exceed expectations later on, maybe not one guy, but let's just talk about wide receivers. I, I think Trent Taylor could have a real fit and and David they called him well they said he's as good as anyone in the slot role in this year's draft and that's high praise with a lot of slot receivers in the 2017 draft class this was the one that that Shanahan called his draft crush I mean this oh I was, love it uh, a guy that he just really <laughs> fell in love with um yeah and I think you know he even with those tiny hands that he has the the guy catches everything Yep. Um, you know, he had nearly 400 targets uh, throughout his college career, he dropped 12 of them, I believe. Um, and so it, it was just uh, something where, yeah, he, he knows how to get open. He has the ability to separate at the top of the route. And again, he catches basically everything that comes his way. You know, the size, I think, limits the overall catch radius there. And um, he's certainly not a guy that's going to, you know, go up uh, very consistently and, and kind of win on jump balls or contested balls or anything like that, though you did kind of see some surprising snaps every once in a while where he did kind of go up and, and get a pass. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think he just kind of brings something to the table that they don't really have at the wide receiver position. I mean, that position is kind of getting a, a massive overhaul as all the skill positions are on this roster right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think he very much has a chance to carve out an, an early role in this offense. Nice. I love that. I mean, I was going to ask you that question, so I'm glad you took it upon yourself. Okay, and then they closed out with DJ Jones, the defensive tackle out of Ole Miss, who's kind of a stout run defender. Uh, maybe a potential pure pass rusher, a Leo, they call him, in Pita T out of Utah. And then Adrian Colbert from Miami, who's a corner, but they most likely see him as a special teamer. So, David, just overall, I want to get your points. I mean, you, you talked about how um, they like length, obviously athleticism. Um, it seems like visits are an important part of their piece. They really want to get to know someone through communication and knowing them firsthand. Um, obviously, this is the first time a completely new regime. We have any idea of what their draft strategy is like. Um, what, what are your biggest conclusions and takeaways from that? Yeah, I think the athleticism point was big. I mean, they use premium picks, you know, on top end athletes, pretty much the only one that they didn't. Uh, was the C.J. Beathard selection, you know, a quarterback. So I think they really valued that. They even got, as an undrafted guy, uh, Matt Breed out of Georgia Southern running back, was the number one spark running back. Um, he was somebody that I think could have been drafted if he would have come out a year early, had big production in 2014, 2015, had a coaching staff change, and the, the whole team kind of fell apart. So he fell off the map a little bit last season. But um, I think he's an intriguing guy. And so, yeah, the athleticism part is is certainly, I think, a big focus for them. Um, and then, you know, I think it, it all kind of comes back to the the draft needs series that you guys had been leading up to the draft. And Evan Silva was basically like, they just need useful football players. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think they found some useful football players 
uh, in this draft. I mean, I think you could see as many as four or five guys uh, really come in and have kind of significant roles early on based on the state of this roster right now. So I think, uh, yeah, there, there, there may be some process question marks, you know, um, that, that are going to, you want to see those get ironed out and, and not really fall into those uh, traps again going forward um, as we get kind of more data on this regime. But I think it's a very promising first step. Absolutely. If you had to guess, or maybe, you know, where is the athletic influence coming from? Um, is, is it someone that they hired? Is it, was it already there? Um, because usually there's like one kind of focal point where that's stemming from. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if it comes from a, a specific person. I have heard Lynch mention a couple times that, you know, they, they really are modeling a lot of things after Seattle. And we know yeah. that Seattle, um, definitely relies heavily on, on spark and, and uses that in their evaluation process. So they seem to kind of be modeling a lot of things that they're doing as, as they kind of figure out what works for them um, after that Seattle model. So that's kind of the, the best core, you know, connection there that, that I've been able to find. I haven't really been able to tie it to a specific person within the front office or anything yet. David, this was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Everyone out there, you can follow David at Newman NFL. Yes, that's three N's in the middle, but it's N-E-U-M-A-N-N-N-F-L. Uh, and go check out his Better Rivals podcast. David, thanks again, buddy. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on, man. It was a lot of fun. And thanks again to David for joining us on the podcast. I mean, I, I thought that was great. He really knows the 49ers well. All right, let's finish out the NFC West as once again a train passes by my apartment here in Connecticut. Uh, the Cardinals are fascinating. Obviously, it's Steve Keim and Bruce Arians. Uh, they had Hassan Reddick, their first-round pick, as a top-five prospect in this class. Hassan Reddick was the number 13 overall pick in this class. They thought no way he could be there. Look, they, they, they explained that they are in sub-packages 65% of the time now in the league, and he can either fill in as a linebacker or as a pass rusher, learn from both positions. And Carlos Dainsby, obviously at linebacker, and Chandler Jones at the edge spot. They were super excited to land Hassan Reddick, but not as excited as they were to go and get Buda Baker, the safety at the number 36 overall pick for the Cardinals. How much did they want Buda Baker? I know everyone flipped out when the Bears moved one spot and traded, obviously, threes and fours. But to move up nine spots in the second round, the Cardinals swapped second-round picks with the Bears and then traded a fourth-round pick in 2017 and a fourth-round pick in 2018, plus a 2017 sixth-round selection. Again, nine spots for all that. And obviously, they like Buddha as a safety or slot corner, allowing him to be on the field once again in sub-package situations. And then we get to Chad Williams, the wide receiver out of Grambling, who many were surprised that he was a third-round selection. But when you think about it, he has size and he has speed. Two things... Well, really, the, la the latter is, is what Bruce Arians covets. And Arians loves, 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 loves taking these third-round receivers. And he also said, I don't like slow guys. I don't give a S word how big you are. You have to be able to run behind people. And obviously, that is Bruce Arians' philosophy. They took two interior offensive linemen, or guys with versatility, and Dorian Johnson and Will Holden. And I'll end with the Cardinals with fifth-round pick TJ Logan. 179. They really like T.J. Logan's receiving ability. So if for some reason, and it would suck 
but if David Johnson goes down, look for TJ Logan to step in to his receiving abilities and receiving downs. They really, really liked his ability again in that area. Okay, let's go to the Los Angeles Rams. Obviously, this is Sean McVay's first draft as head coach with Les Snead. And speaking of McVay, he absolutely loved Gerald Everett at pick number 44. In fact, they said that they would have taken him at 37 where they traded down. Um, but he, he was kind of the apple of McVay's eye. And look, I know they took two tight ends last year in Tyler Higby and Tamaric Hemingway. And I'm not saying they're giving up on Higby, but this is, you know, a new decision maker coming to the fold. If he has his eye on someone, that's his guy. So I, I would bet, unless the development is slow, that Everett gets the first crack over Higby. And we know that McVay loves to use tight ends in the receiving game. Uh, they see Cooper Cup as a slot receiver. Mostly, they said he might play in the outside a little bit. Whatever. He's going to be the slot receiver. We all know that. Uh, John Johnson's going to kind of fill in that hybrid safety corner role. And then Josh Reynolds, a fourth-round pick that I loved, uh, is is kind of the outside type who can have a big catch radius for them. I'm not sure if you're going to see time early, but I like his talent. More importantly with the Rams, they obviously didn't invest in corner. They obviously didn't invest in offensive line. And both were asked this, and both said they're fine with both positions. I think that's absolutely crazy. And we know the Rams offensive line is completely being reshuffled. So we'll see how it works out. New coaches coming in. Uh, maybe they can kind of change the the success of the younger Rams offensive linemen that they spent plenty of draft capital on in the past, but it hasn't worked out for them so far, in my opinion. Uh, let's end with the Seattle Seahawks, a team that traded three times before making their first pick. Obviously, they started at 31 then they moved all the way down to 35 to get Malik McDowell, a guy they called a unique player. They understood and admitted to his difficulties during his final year. They said that his close buddies left school a year early at Michigan State, that he was banged up, he was injured. And they even said that McDowell would claim to even wanting a few games back. And they had those kinds of difficult discussions with him, but they believe that his talent warrants it. And McDowell, for me, was a top 10 prospect in this class. And then just a few picks later is Ethan Posich, a center at LSU. But they feel like they got like two and a half players out of drafting him. So let me try to explain what that means when they said it. Two and a half players, meaning he can fill in about two and a half different positions along the offensive line. So if, if he's using a utility role, he can play center, he can play guard, he can play right tackle. And in fact, right tackle might be where he ultimately lands on this offensive line, but obviously they're trying to see where the pieces fall and where they sit and where they fit together. But we know that the Seahawks are very much in tune with visits and especially with offensive linemen, with Tom Cable having a close connection and constant communication with them during the draft process. They hid their interest and Ethan Posich didn't even allow Tom Cable to speak to him at any point in the process. So that shows you, and, and they even said their hearts were in their throats on this pick, that they really, really wanted him. Um, they were sweating it out, and, and they finally got their guy, and they were very happy about it. Uh, Shaq Griffin fits kind of the mold of the outside corner. But more importantly with the Seahawks, and I'll end on this, is they really want prospects and kind of drift and, and shift towards them the ones that have stories, okay, the ones that have overcome adversity, that's a big deal to the Seahawks. Uh, you talk about Shaq Griffin, who obviously has a brother, I think even a twin, who he brought him along basically to uh, UCF. 
Um, then you have Nas Jones, who overcame a serious, serious uh, history in terms of, of medicals. I mean, a, an illness. And people thought he would never play football again. And he overcame that. Uh, Amara Darbo, the third-round wide receiver out of Michigan. I mean, you can go and Google things that his parents, um, in, in terms of Sierra Leone, where he's from, and that type of adversity. And it goes on and on. I mean, that's throughout their entire roster, you know? That, that's something to watch for with the Seahawks moving forward. Again, they want prospects who have had to battle and deal with things throughout their life and have come out better from it, I guess, if, if I can kind of put words in their mouth. But if, if I was to take one conclusion away, it's that from the Seahawks. Thanks so much for listening. Um, again, go follow David Newman on Twitter. Uh, it's Newman, N-E-U-M-A-N-N-N-F-L. And... Obviously, if you like this podcast, we would really, really appreciate a five-star review. It takes 30 seconds, 15 seconds, and really does help us out. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon. See ya. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.